The truest prophets don't just speak prophetically, they live prophetically. They live distinctly for God, which is a big part of what empowers them to speak for God. We desperately need prophets today. We need people who live distinctly for God without compromise so that they can speak for God with power. Bring it all to peace. Storm surrounding me, let it break at your name. Still, call the sea to still, the raging me to still. Every wave at your name, Jesus, Jesus. Darkness trembles, Jesus, Jesus. You silence me, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Breathe, call these bones to live, call these lungs to sing. Once again, I will praise Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. You silence fear, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Shadows can't deny your name, not be overcome. Your name is alive, forever lifted high. Your name cannot be overcome. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus.
Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus.
Good morning, Blue Water. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. So join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just invite you right now, wherever we're at, come and be with us, Lord. We invite you, we create space for you. Lord, we want to be just so close to your heart. God, as we just spend this time just focusing and just um, dead, carving up time, Lord, to really just spend time in your word, in fellowship, um, in communion with you. I pray, Father, that you'll speak to us, Lord, in every single minute, Lord, of this service. Come, Lord. We want to encounter you more than anything else. God, just be with us, Lord. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, my name is Phil, and I went to the Holy Spirit retreat last weekend. And the time there at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit retreat was uh, was a time of rest. I felt like I was able to get grounded um, and spend time with the Holy Spirit in ways that I haven't really have done in the past. And I feel like the Holy Spirit was playful yet direct with me I felt like it was um the Holy Spirit was revealing my true identity and I feel like I was able to let go of a lot of things that I felt like I was clinging on to uh and I feel like the Holy Spirit was able to um, pour a new freshness over me and if anybody's considering going I would encourage that person um by just going and, and uh, checking it out, spend some time in prayer and um, see what God tells you. Uh, it was worth it to me and I think it'd be worth it to you to go to the next one they have. Thanks. Good morning, Blue Water. So um, one of the things that we haven't been able to do since COVID hit is gather and especially do worship. And I know many of you, just like me, have been craving and waiting and dreaming for that time where we're going to get to finally come together again and praise God in the freedom and in person, hearing the voices in the air, singing together, because it is hard. Side note, it's tough to harmonize on Zoom. It's very hard. But with that said, we are putting together an all-church in-person worship night. So imagine this, we've got this big old space that we're going to use. We've got an hour and a half of time and it's going to be BYOG, bring your own gear. You're going to be able to bring some snacks, bring a chair, bring a blanket, bring your favorite um, cuddly big stuffed animal if you like. And we're planning to kind of just organize it together. Uh, in families and there will be appropriate COVID friendly spacing and safety precautions in place and we're going to have just an hour and a half of uninterrupted focused time on worshiping the Lord together as a community. It's going to be so good and it's going to be on um, November 22nd so it's coming up soon. It'll help us a ton if you guys can RSVP ahead of time so that we can make sure there's appropriate spacing and safety precautions in place. And we're hoping that this will be one of many fun events like this to be able to do uh, in the months to come. So we hope that you guys will be there. It's gonna be, oh, delicious.
So if you've been a part of Blue Water for the past 10 years, you will know that we have our Blue Water Christmas concert. Every year, it's legendary. And this year, it's gonna be especially unique because of COVID, we're gonna be doing it all online. We've been working on different parts of it already, and there's um, a specific aspect that we wanna invite as many of you to contribute. It's gonna be, so a big part of Blue Water Worship Time is our art. We always have artists um, next to the stage, even in the virtual services, we always have continued to feature art and that's gonna be one of the main aspects of our Christmas concert this year. So what we wanted to do was invite as many people as possible to submit some of their own art whether it's um, a painting or a sculpture, some kind of visual art, we wanna include as much as possible. We know so many of you do different kinds of art. And so the theme is gonna be along the lines of a couple Christmas songs. And that's all you need to know. Just do your art and send in your submissions and we'd love to have um, just an amazing kind of mosaic of these art pieces to be a part of the Blue Water Christmas concert this year. So I really love tithing because in my relationship with God, I've learned how he really makes it an invitation to grow in our ability to be generous and to receive from him because he always gives a return to our generosity, whether it's to our church or to our church family or even to a stranger. He promises to give a return to our generosity and I love tithing for that reason. If you want to tie this week to Blue Water, you can send it online at bluewatermission.org or you can uh, send it through the mail to our church office. With that said, we're going to pray for our kids. Kids, if you're in the room, this is for you. Get into receive mode, whatever that looks like for you. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I thank you for the way that you bless our kids every week way that you are blessing them. May they see you and feel you in greater measure today and this week. We thank you for the way that uh, you teach us through our kids, that you empower our kids to also be change agents wherever they go. We love you. We bless you back, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Joel chapter 2, we read that in the age of the Holy Spirit, all may prophesy. We all get to hear from God, and in some respect, we all kind of get to be prophets. But the truest sort of prophet doesn't just speak prophecies. He or she lives prophetically, which is to say lives distinctly for God, which is a big part of what empowers him or her to prophesy powerfully. Prophets believe big in life. And so they get to speak big in life. Uh, we're in a season of the world that I think desperately needs prophets. We need people who live distinctly without compromise so that they can speak truths with power. Uh, the prophet Daniel was just such a person, and this is the beginning of a sermon series on the book of Daniel. Studying Daniel will be worth it to you if it helps you to believe big in a world that wants you to believe small and to speak small.
Um, Daniel is filled uh, with prophetic dreams, as it turns out. How many of you have had dreams that you felt were from God? Yeah, I've had them pretty much all my life. Some of them uh, stick out to me uh, because of their sweep, um, the, the magnitude of what they spoke about. And I remember them for years. One of these dreams I remember vividly even today, and I had it in 1989. Uh, right as uh, I was leaving college, I was living in a, uh, a very uh, troubled neighborhood. I was doing some social justice ministry in a community house, that sort of thing. And then one night I had this dream. In the dream, I was leading a group of people, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't. They were all sort of symbolic uh, characters to me. And I was leading them in ministry and I was leading them in works of social justice. And in the dream, we entered this huge auditorium just filled with hundreds and hundreds of people, and I knew that it was a Christian venue, like a Christian conference or something like that. And then there was one guy on the stage, and he was kind of the focal point. He was sort of the, uh, uh, the, the speaker, the messenger of the event, but he was a strange-looking fellow. The first thing you noticed about him is that he was incredibly obese, just had layers of fat, looked really unhealthy. He was sort of unkempt, unshaven, had a little beard, and he was kind of dressed in drag, kind of dressed up as a woman. He had like a little pink tutu on and this scraggly, ridiculous wig. Um, not like, uh, you know, a, a transvestite would, not trying to look uh, really feminine per se or beautiful. This kind of ridiculous, like maybe a comedian in the 1950s, a male comedian would dress up like a woman to look silly. It was that sort of impression. And, and this guy was talking to the, the church, essentially, um, but he was talking in a very uh, moanful sort of way. Yeah, his message was, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I, I just don't have what it takes. And what he was saying, effectively, was, I just can't, I can't be what I was born to be. You know, I can't be a man. I can't be powerful because I'm so obese, that sort of thing. And I just got really offended in the dream. And this is a little weird and it's a little bit disgusting, so excuse me. But I walked up on the stage and, uh, and, I, and I grabbed his fat and I lifted it up, kind of exposing his male parts and said, you do have what it takes to be a man. You do have what it takes. Weird dream, right? Weird dream. Um, but even while I was having it, I felt it was very powerful. And then the rest of the dream uh, went on episodically to predict future events in my life, a number of which have become true in precise sort of ways. So it tells me that the whole dream was probably really accurate. The whole dream was probably from God. I woke up from that dream with kind of immediate understanding that the church was listening to a message that was not true. Uh, the church was being led by some kind of messenger um, uh, who was not living up to who he was made to be. You understand? You follow the symbolism? And my counter message to the church was supposed to be, no, you do have what it takes to be who 
you are supposed to be in the world. You do have what it takes to be what you are supposed to be in the world. For instance, to be a people who restores justice on the earth, which is what I was trying to do in, in the dream. Church, you are not who you've let yourself become. And I kind of adopted that message as part of my life, even when I was 22 years old. So that's one dream. The second dream I wanted to mention, I had in 20 years later, pretty much, in January 2008. And this was a very simple dream. In the dream, I saw, I was looking up and I just kind of saw the heavens. I just sort of saw the heavenlies. And then I saw these giant blocks, I guess you'd be like building blocks, only they were the size of mountains. And they were like truly immense, almost without dimension, they were so big. And I saw these blocks shift. One block moved in front of the other block. And that was the whole dream. But in witnessing that, I became terrified. And I knew that something had shifted in the heavenlies in a way that was massive and weighty and scary. And I woke up from that dream. I just shot up out of bed. I was drenched in sweat and I was terrified. And I, I usually don't react that way to dreams. I'm, I'm so familiar with prophetic dreams now that when I have them, I usually interpret them while I'm dreaming. And when I wake up, I have the interpretation. I'm really calm, but not this one. I just shot up. It affected me physically. It affected me emotionally. The feeling of the dream was just fantastic. And I understood that from that moment on, something had changed on the earth. In particular, I felt like something had changed in America, like a shift in gravity itself, and that everybody would feel the pressure of the change. We were in a completely new atmosphere, a completely new season, and that things were possible that didn't used to be possible, and they were bad things. And the word that kept coming out of my mind when I woke from the dream was secularism, godlessness, that now the world was able to be godless in a way that it had not been before, at least the world, the part of the world that I lived in. And indeed, I would say that over the last 16 years since I had that dream, um, our culture has probably shifted faster than it's ever shifted before in the history of America. So I think something did change in, in the heavenlies. And very bad things are now possible that didn't used to be possible in our world, though some might not think so. All right, why do I share this story about those dreams? Well, if you give credence to such things, if you believe in the value of prophetic dreams, then you know, you'll want to look for them and you'll want to respect them when you get them because you'll believe that they carry information that is worth knowing. But also, every once in a while, it's good to have big, sweeping prophetic dreams uh, because it testifies to the truth that God is the God over all history, that God is the God over all societies. Are you following me? And that kind of what those dreams suggested to me. Even though they were disturbing in a way, they helped me to believe big because they testified to my spirit that God is big and he's into big things. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Um, and that is sort of a setup uh, to understand uh, the book of Daniel, uh, which, as I say, is, is filled with dreams 
but also has some pretty epic themes that I believe ultimately are designed to build our faith. I loved the book of Daniel as a kid. I'd say it was my favorite book. By the time I was like 10, 11 years old, I'd probably read it like 20 times. I just loved it. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons I love Daniel is because I had prophetic dreams. It was just part of my gift set as a kid. I would have all these dreams that would predict future events. Like I used to have dreams that would predict the outcome of big sporting events, big upcoming sporting events. I should have made a fortune in Vegas, but I was just a kid. Um, I would sometimes dream about natural disasters before they happened, and sometimes it would really wig me out and depress me. Uh, and so, you know, understand why I gravitated to a book like Daniel, which is a prophetic book that has uh, stories about a lot of prophetic dreams in it. On the other hand, it has occurred to me that maybe the reason I dream so much prophetically is because I love Daniel. And I was always reading the book of Daniel, and it spoke about prophetic dreams, and it kind of opened me up to that mode of hearing from God in my life. Um, not sure. But in any case, Daniel became a role model for me. I remember from you know, like nine years old, just kind of adopting Daniel as a role model. I just loved the guy. I just found him so relatable. Uh, Daniel, if you know the story, we'll go through it in coming weeks, uh, was a young, young man. He became a really well-educated guy who famously stood against the indoctrination given him by the highest institutions of learning and government in his day. He maintained a strikingly humble devotion to God in relatively small fellowship of friends. But he could also see the big moves of history. God spoke to him about it, and he was able to um, help other people hear when God spoke to them about it. He was a simple guy. He never seemed to do anything grandiose, even though he was a grand figure. Uh, he was famous for eating his veggies, as we'll read about today. He studied hard. He worked hard. He did his daily devotionals. He would do daily prayer. We see him study the Bible, study scripture, and he didn't panic in a crisis. Uh, that was Daniel. He doesn't call down fire from heaven like the prophet Elijah did. He doesn't act out performance prophecy on the street corners like Ezekiel did. He doesn't walk around naked like Isaiah did. He doesn't get swallowed by a fish like Jonah did. But in some ways, he was more prophetic than all of them. And he wasn't a, he wasn't a priest, you know. Uh, he, was, he was kind of a bureaucrat. Maybe you could think of him as a, a mild-mannered professor. He was a practical problem solver who was also a mystic. The phrase I thought of is practical mystic. He was both. And I just, I just love that uh, about him. Quick overview of the book of Daniel before we jump in today. Filled with really awesome stories. Really cool stories. And if you're uh, a person who grew up in the church, you studied these stories in Sunday school when you were a kid. It's that kind of story. You get the story of the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. How awesome is that story, right? And you're going to use that story in kid ministry, right? Awesome story. Uh, you get Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, come on. That's a great story. Uh, you get uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king of his age, going insane for years, uh, subsequent to a dream that he had about it. That's a cool story, I think, like that. 
you get a story about a disembodied hand writing a message into a wall in the king's hall. That's a great story. So really cool stories, and you got to respect that. It makes for awesome reading. That's in the first half of the book of Daniel, you get those stories. And then the second half of the book of Daniel is just filled with these epic, peerlessly precise, sweeping historical prophecies. Daniel seems to predict with great accuracy Alexander the Great and his empire. He seems to predict centuries before they arrived the Romans and the Roman Empire and how the Roman Empire would work and stuff like that. In Daniel chapter 9, we get the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which in my opinion is just, I don't know, it's worth believing the whole Bible just to read uh, Daniel chapter 9 and the prophecy of the 70 weeks because it seems to predict down to the week when Jesus of Nazareth would enter Jerusalem. It's historically confirmed, but prophesied long about 600 years before Jesus even lived. Um, there's a lot of controversy about the book of Daniel. If you read scholarly commentaries online or something like that, part of the controversy is caused by the precision of the prophecies that you read in the last half of the book of Daniel because people read them and they're like, okay, there's no way that a guy actually prophesied this precisely. So clearly what happened is that later people after the events, went back and edited the book of Daniel to include information about those events and make it, made it look like Daniel predicted them. Um, one fact in support of that is that um, the Hebrews uh, in, the, in the first centuries AD did not include Daniel in their canon of prophets. Instead, they put Daniel in uh, the section of the Hebrew Bible called the writings, along with Ezra and Nehemiah and some of these historical type books. And people say, well, they didn't really believe him to be uh, prophetic uh, in that way. However, Jesus himself calls Daniel a, a prophet. Um, and there are just some eerie things uh, about the book that leads me to not bet against it. I mean, it could be that later people got into it and edited certain things, but I, I, I don't buy that the whole thing was faked. There's been a lot of criticism about Daniel because some of the accounts contain what were considered historical inaccuracies, like bad dates or figures that, that historians knew didn't exist. Well, what's happened over the decades is that as archaeology and historical studies have improved, we found that actually the scholars were wrong and Daniel was right. And uh, history seems to support Daniel's accounts. And as we go through the book of Daniel, we'll examine some of those things uh, so that you too uh, can have confidence in, uh, in what we're reading and reflect for yourself. But personally, I don't know how you could read the book of Daniel and not at least revere the Bible as an authoritative and otherworldly thing. It is a truly unique and stirring book in, in that way. The first half of the book of Daniel, like I say, is filled with these great stories, uh, stories that have to do with Daniel and his friends honoring God in a culture that mocked God uh, and how they worked that out. The little things they did that led to enormous prophetic power for them. 
and then the second half of the book are these great prophecies and unique personal accounts about receiving prophecies and understanding them well. In short, it's all about how to live powerfully in a culture that doesn't respect God or God's ways. Uh, it's about how to understand God's supernatural voice to you. And it's about how to worship the almighty God of history, which is a little bit different than just worshiping the God of your life. And all of those things, I think, have some value. So our text from today comes from Daniel chapter 1, because, hey, why not start at the beginning? And I'm just going to read the whole chapter. It's a, it's a story. It's an account, so it goes pretty fast. The background that you need to know, this was written about 600 B.C., and what's happened is that King Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylonian king, the most powerful king of the most powerful empire of the age, invades Israel, invades Jerusalem, sacks Jerusalem, and carries into exile a lot of the people who live there, including a lot of the treasures of the temple. So this is a very low point in the history of Israel. Their country has pretty much just been destroyed, just been invaded and destroyed, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king who did it. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon, Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar raids the temple, takes the treasures of the temple, and sticks them in the temple of his God as if to say, my God is better than your God, that sort of thing. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So these captives, these young men from captive families, were essentially given a college scholarship, and they were to be trained up to serve the conquering king, Nebuchadnezzar. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the chief official gave them new names. <clears throat> to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. We'll talk about those names in a second. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. The name was one thing, but the food is another. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Nebuchadnezzar actually famous for torture and murder. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. 
Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young man who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. This is the first fitness test ever recorded in history, right here. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Eat your veggies, kids. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, uh, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom, the magi, some translations will say. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he lasted for four or five kings, depending on how you count it. Um, the opening of the book of Daniel, it starts with an awful situation for the Jewish exiles. They've been beat up, they've been taken captive, taken to a foreign country, and now the, their best and brightest is sort of co-opted by the conquering king. Uh, brings them into the, into the palace, he essentially sends them to Babylon College where they have to learn the language, they have to learn the customs, they have to learn the literature. They essentially have to become Babylonian. Um, uh, as part of the deal, since they were to serve in the palace, they might well have been castrated as well, which probably wasn't fun, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, so they're really getting worked over, uh, shall we say. Um, they were given an education cum indoctrination, right? It's clear that they're not just being educated, but they're being indoctrinated into Babylon. Uh, they're really being made into Babylonians. Indoctrination to the point of identity change, right? Because even their names get changed. Daniel, which means God judges, uh, Yahweh judges, right? The, the one true God judges, becomes Belteshazzar, which comes from uh, the word Baal, the god Baal. So he's named after a foreign god. And, you know, and so too uh, with all of the... Um, the other, Hananiah, which means uh, something like God is gracious, um, becomes Shadrach, which means like companion of Aku, the, the god Aku, and all of these guys, Mishael means he who is like God, um, becomes Meshach, which is also from, derives from uh, the name of the god Aku, the Babylonian god Aku. So they're all named after foreign gods, foreign idols the humiliation, the degradation that was involved with their identity change would be hard to overestimate. And then when all is said and done, they get co-opted with a sweet position. They get to serve in the palace of the king and they get all the benefits of being in the palace. So they kind of get sanded down to nothing, but then kind of rewarded with something. It's like, you know, we just wash you from your previous identity, but we're going to give you a really awesome rich, respectable, respectable identity in return. So they have incentive to be co-opted. If you play along, you're in. 
and you'll be in good. So that's the situation. They get, they'll be celebrated and empowered to the degree they become co-opted and they buy into the new culture, the new, the new system. This is kind of politically brilliant of Nebuchadnezzar. Indeed, historians use words like enlightened uh, to describe Nebuchadnezzar's policies because he took some of the best and the brightest of the people that he conquered and he made them more Babylonian than Babylon. Right? He gave them a stake in the system and assured that they would help him preserve and manage his empire. So it was, it was very clever thinking, but ruthless thinking. Part of the benefit that these guys would get would be food from the king's table. Now, in those days, the common person did not eat well. But, you know, those involved with the empire, with the king's palace, ate very, very well indeed choice food and wine, which would be meats of all different sorts, wines of all different sorts, sauces and stuff like that. Probably a lot like we eat uh, today. Whereas the common people, we eat like barley bread and, you know, water, that sort of thing. And so that was a really big benefit. But Daniel says, no. No, I don't want to eat your food. Um, because the food of the king would have been sacrificed to idols, would have been dedicated to these foreign gods that they'd all been named after. And I don't know exactly what went through Daniel's head, but it's something like, well, look, I can't control what you call me, but I'm gonna try to control what I eat. I don't want to honor these gods that way. You know, I gotta do something to distinguish myself for the true God. And for whatever reason, food was the thing that he chose. Uh, and, and he proposes it in a clever way. He goes to one official who says, no, I'm scared. And then he kind of goes to the underfficial and says, okay, let's do this test, right? And maybe that will help me push my case. He proposes a test which is both polite and bold, right? He doesn't throw a fit. He just says, let's just do this. Do it with me and let's see how it works. And so Daniel and his friends eat vegetarian for 10 days and everybody else eats rich meat and stuff like that. Of course the vegetarians come out on top of that deal, right, Quack? Of course the vegetarian. That's right, Quack. <laughs> it's always how it works, people. It's always how it works. Um, and so on the basis of the fitness test and the obvious results, you know, Daniel and his buddies are allowed to eat distinctly to kind of draw that line and maintain some of their God culture, uh, so to speak. Here's a simple but powerful observation about this story. One of the first things that we learn about Daniel. Daniel actually believes in God. Daniel actually believes that the ways of God will lead to blessing. He has reasoned out in this test that if he eats a kosher diet, if he, if he eats, if he, uh, <clears throat> refuses to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols, he'll actually be healthier as a result, right? And, and, you know, Scripture doesn't actually say that, but Daniel clearly believes that God's ways just lead to blessing, right? So he's in on it. Uh, it took a fair bit of faith for him to do that, to extend himself like that. He actually believes that God's ways lead to blessing, and that obeying God's ways isn't just a sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice to obey God. It's a great investment. It will actually lead to your blessing. 
all of Daniel's life is kind of predicated on that idea. Daniel probably didn't have to do the food thing. You know, like, I'm not sure God would have rejected him because you know, there's so much in his life that is beyond his control. And you could easily see him justifying eating food sacrificed to idols by saying to himself that, look, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna play along and then I'll get an influential position in government and then I'll be in a position to help my friends and help my people, right? He could have very easily justified that compromise. But in the swirl of Daniel's life, he needed to draw a line somewhere and he chose food. He chose the diet thing. And every time I read this story, I think to myself, well, where do I draw the line in my life? Or where do I draw the lines in my life? Because probably there needs to be more than one. Um, when uh, <clears throat> I was uh, <clears throat> in, uh, I think I just finished my third year in college, I had gone home uh, to visit my family in, in Oregon, uh, where they lived at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I lived in this little rural valley. Uh, there weren't big jobs to be had there, so I got a job at a gas station uh, where my stepbrother worked. And uh, I was just, you know, I was just a flunky at the gas station, uh, pumping gas and changing oil and stuff like that. It was a cool summer job as far as it went. But I said to the owners, I was like, I'll work six days a week, but please, I don't want to work on Sundays. That's a special day to me. That's the day that I go to church. That's my Sabbath. And the first week, they screwed up on it, and they scheduled me on Sunday. So I went to the boss, and I said, hey, no problem. I'm going to work. Could I volunteer today and not get paid? And in some way, you know, I feel like I'm making a gesture toward the Sabbath. He actually got really mad at me for that. I think he felt judged, and you know, it didn't go really smoothly. But all the other guys in the gas station heard about it and that's how I kind of became known as the Christian guy. Like everywhere I ever worked, I became known as the Christian guy. And this was how I got known as the Christian guy there. And they kind of came to respect my, you know, my Sabbath. And then what happened invariably is that they would come to me as their Christian counselor in life or ask me questions about things as we were shooting the breeze, talking story during the quiet moments of the job. Uh, that, that Sabbath policy was an extension of a policy I had in college to not do homework on the Sabbath. I was just trying to find little ways to make myself distinct. Uh, the story goes, uh, there was a, a kid in the gas station who was launching an affair with a married woman at the time. And I think he felt a little uneasy about it. And so he came to me and said, well, you know, Jordan, uh, I know that uh, you're a spiritual guy. That's usually how they say things. Uh, I just want you to know, uh, I'm going to go over to uh, this married woman's house tonight, and I'm going to sleep with her. We're going to party. I just wanted you to know that. And that's how he said it, um, which is really weird, right? But, but I think in a weird way, he was like, he felt guilty. He wanted to know how a godly person might respond to that, you know? He's just curious. He was, he was stirred up. Um, by my distinct lifestyle, you might say. And so I said, well, I'm not sure that's going to work out very well. You know, she is married and there's a lot of problems with stuff like that. So here's what I'm going to do. You go, he was going to leave right then. You go and I will pray that it does not work out. <laughs> and he was like, deal. He actually shook my hand. 
And then he went off and he came back to work the next morning just dragging in. And he looked at me and he said, what did you do? <laughs> I go, what, what do you mean? What did I do? What did you do? And then he pulled me aside and said, I got there, but I, I couldn't do it. I said, what do you mean you couldn't do it? He said, you know, it wouldn't work. <laughs> do I need to explain more? Are you following me? Uh, his, his, uh, his body did not function properly in the moment. And he was embarrassed. Uh, and, and he had to leave. My reputation grew. Why do, I tell that, why do I tell that ridiculous story? I tell that ridiculous story because, you know, it's like distinction and revelation and power. You draw little lines in your life and it sometimes leads to, uh, to interesting, spiritually fruitful uh, stories. Where are you going to draw the line? How are you going to draw it? Sometimes this is what the Christian life comes down to. Um, uh, in the wake of the Vietnam War, to switch gears a little bit, uh, the U.S. military armed forces changed their policy on uh, prisoners of war resisting torture and brainwashing. Because um, uh, <clears throat> pilots... Uh, were of particular issue. They'd get shot down, they'd end up in Vietnamese uh, prison camps, and then they would be subjected to brainwashed policies in these prison camps, uh, which were sometimes run or inspired by the Chinese who had developed this system of brainwashing. And it turned out that American um, military personnel didn't have a lot of resistance to it. They were used to, you know, resisting in World War II prison camps, but Vietnamese prison camps were different. Here's why they were different. Uh, the soldiers would not be immediately asked to betray their country or to give up secret information or battle plans and stuff like that. Their captors would not do that. Instead, their captors would bring them in, give them a nice meal, and ask them to maybe write a short essay on how nobody's perfect or something like that. And then, uh, you know, they get a nice meal as a, as a reward. And the prisoners who were scared and hungry would be like, yeah, okay, I can do that. Sure, nobody's perfect. And then the next time they come in, the captors would say, you know what? Everybody in your cell block over there is really malnourished. We'll give them all citrus fruit, oranges. We'll give them vitamin C. If you write a short essay on how no country is perfect. Okay, I can do that. That's true. And then the next essay would be about how America is not perfect. And then how no war is perfect. How sometimes in war bad things happen and people do bad things. And pretty soon, inch by inch, the, the soldier was writing about how the Vietnam War waged by America was a bad idea. And essentially found himself sort of betraying his cause. And then when the soldier realized that he was betraying his cause in that fashion, he would give up the rest of it. He would sell all, all of his information and stuff like that. Sometimes for good reason, right? Sometimes out of compassion to the other prisoners and rewards that they would get. So it was an inch by inch sort of thing, which turns out is the best way to turn people into quote unquote traitors. And so soldiers had to be trained in a new manner of resistance to kind of notice where the lines are, you know, and how to be resilient even if you fail to bounce back before it's too late.
that became the training. Why, why do I talk about that? It's because of this. Satan only ever defeats us by inches. Satan doesn't try to defeat you wholesale. He tries to defeat you a little bit at a time. He tries to blur where the lines might fall. That just gets you to compromise tiny, tiny bits at a time until suddenly you're like, wow, how did I get here? And then you have a dissonant moment. You don't like where you are. You don't like thinking of yourself as a traitor or as a sinner. And so you just decide that you were always here, that you never really believed what you used to believe. You know, that this is who you are, you know? Like that ridiculous guy in my dream. It's like, yeah, this is who I am, you know? I've, I've become obese and dysfunctional. I, I never had what it took, you know? I was never that person. Are you understanding? Satan over, only ever defeats us by inches. <clears throat> my, my Christian life in fellowship is just littered with souls lost, these lost souls who got lost because they didn't draw a line and they drifted little by little into darkness, right? And say, oh, this isn't so bad. I can do this. It's okay. And then before long, they notice that their faith is actually dead. So, you know, and this is the key part, they decide that they never really believed as the other people believed anyway. And that's how they solve the cognitive dissonance in their mind. They rationalize their co-optation by the world, if you're following me. That's what we do. That's how the world gets us. That's how Satan gets us. Inch by inch, minuscule compromises until we get to a place where we need to start rationalizing. And it's because we don't draw lines. Like, like Daniel could have said, you know, oh, it's just food. You know, food isn't a fundamental. Does it really affect your spirit anyway, what you eat? And the answer is, well, I mean, no, no, not directly. He could have said, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to eat so that I can get to a position where I could be a person of influence, of good for my friends and my people. Yeah, but the line has got to be drawn somewhere. And we have to be wise about how to do that when we're in a godless culture. When everything's pressing in, it's up to us to figure out where the lines fall, where your personal line fall. At the end of the story, we see that God rewards uh, Daniel and his friends. He rewards their unwillingness to compromise with a great gift of wisdom, right? Daniel gets the ability to interpret uh, signs and riddles and dreams and stuff like that. These guys, their job is to be wise men. And so God really blesses that. And he makes them more wise, more gifted in more ways, both natural and supernatural, than any of their peers. In other words, by drawing a little line, by embracing the ways of God and the power of God, they become a gift to the world. They not only get blessed, but they become a blessing. And the rest of the story, uh, rest of the stories in the book of Daniel, we get to see indeed how they become a blessing even to the city of Babylon where they are being held captive. They get real wisdom, not just the culturally approved 
politically correct knowledge that they were supposed to be programmed with. No, they get real wisdom. Uh, they get godly wisdom. A wisdom that would cover the breadth of history, as it turns out, as we will read. God's ways are a blessing, not just a sacrifice. The message of the book of Daniel. So I think we should carry away from chapter 1 this idea that everyone has to draw a line against moral drift in the world. In some sense, you need to figure out where that line is for you. But figure it out. You know, don't just drift along and look for something that's just shockingly obvious. No, I mean, draw it. That's your job. That's how you remain distinct in this world. I am as far from a legalist as I think a person can get. Um, but I take stock of the tithes of the world. Sometimes the Lord speaks to me about the great tithes of worldly culture so that I can draw lines against those tides so that I can make myself distinct uh, in the world so that I can get blessed and so that I can be a blessing to others so that I can be a prophet. The world needs them. I draw lines against moral drift. Sometimes I have to draw lines against personal temptation where I feel the darkness pressing in on me. Sometimes I have to draw lines against accusation and manipulation. I have to decide how much influence I'm going to let people have over me, you know. I have to draw lines against anxiety, against fear. These are very uncertain times. They're very anxious for a lot of us in a lot of different ways. You know, maybe you need a Sabbath day. Maybe you need a place where you draw a boundary and you don't practice fear, but you practice faith instead. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would empower your people to live distinctly so that your people can manifest revelation on the earth so that we can be blessed better and more fruitful than we would be otherwise, and so that we can be a blessing to the world that desperately needs illumination. And I pray, Lord, here at the beginning of our sermon series on Daniel, that you would speak prophetically to Blue Water Mission, that you would speak to us about big themes, and of course, that you would give us specific and personal direction, Holy Spirit, as you often do. I pray, Lord, for the spirit of wisdom in our midst as the gravity of the world gets greater and greater. I pray that you would make us wise in the way that we just draw lines in the sand. We say, yeah, I don't go farther than this. This I need to do for my soul. This I need to do to be prophetic and powerful. Let your spirit of revelation go out, Lord.
And when the Lord brings repentance, it very rarely feels heavy. It often feels urgent, exciting, but there's a taste of freedom in it. I pray, Lord, that you would free us up. Uh, Protect us from being defeated by inches. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey there, Blue Water. Thanks again for joining us for our Sunday service. I hope that you were encouraged by the start of this study in the book of Daniel. It's so relevant. I know as a mom and as someone taking care of extended family, in the midst of regular life is right where I need God to show me how to make space for him, how to be different, to be set apart. And I know he's going to be speaking to us continually through this ongoing study. Really looking forward to worshiping together as a community soon. And uh, also looking forward to giving thanks to God for his faithfulness, his provision to us in these last months. God bless you. We love you. Praying for you. Have an awesome rest of your day.